Okay, a couple of reminders from previous classes before we jump into this. Salvation is an individual affair. You can go to any kingdom of glory, whichever kingdom of glory you desire, alone, just you. You don't need anyone else, even the celestial. Is that true? Can you go to the celestial kingdom alone? Yes, you can. Salvation is an individual affair, you and Jesus. But if you desire exaltation, can you achieve exaltation alone? Exaltation is a family affair. If you desire exaltation, you've got to make family work. Now we spent that, that's been our topic of discussion many times this semester, right? How do you make family work? How do you, how do, you do that? We saw in section two, the very second section, actually the first chronological section of the Doctrine and Covenants, that if Elijah doesn't come and give us the power to seal families, what does it say? This whole earth was a waste. If we don't seal families, then the whole purpose of this earth was a waste. And if you desire exaltation, then it requires a family. So today we're going to talk about how do you make it last forever? How do you make a marriage last forever? Now, I loved Elder Ballard's talk at General Conference. The things of most worth last the longest. And I would, for our purpose tonight, we're going to kind of twist that a little bit. I need to make sure that the most important things in my life last the longest. It is not very important to me that my vehicle last forever. I do not expect my vehicle to last for eternity. And when it dies, you know what? I'll be sad, but I'll move on. I'll find another vehicle. It is not necessary that any article of clothing or any piece of electronics that I own last forever. I won't be brokenhearted if they don't. But there is one thing in my life that if it doesn't last forever, I will consider my life a waste. And that one thing is my family. Everything else will fade. But my family, I need to make sure that my family lasts the longest. So how do you do that? God has given the rule. Turn with me to section 132. 132. Just a story about this. Joseph Smith dictated this to my great-great-great-grandfather. He dictated it. Hiram said, ooh, let me write it down. I want to write it down so that we have a copy. And Joseph said, don't bother. I could repeat it at any moment. Which is astounding that it was in his head. Look at the length of section 132. And Joseph says, you don't need to write it down. I could repeat it at any moment. So the law of eternal marriage. 
Let's start in verse 7, section 132, verse 7. Anyone want to read? Nice little short verse here. All right, May, right? Okay, May, I'm going, to ha- I'm going to stop you a little bit and bump you around, but just bear with me. Go ahead. And verily I say unto you, the conditions of the fall are these. All covenants, contracts, bonds, obligations, oaths, vows, performances, connections, associations, expectations. Pause. Pretty ex- extensive list, right? All covenants, contracts, bonds, obligations, oaths, vows, performances, connections, associations, or even expectations. You shouldn't even expect it to last forever unless you meet two requirements. The Lord's going to give us one and two. Now we're going to skip that and get to the end. If I don't meet these two expectations, may find the right parentheses and continue right there. Let me set you up again. All covenants, contracts, bonds, obligations, oaths, vows, performances, connections, associations, or expectations that don't meet these two requirements. Now, keep going, May. Are of no efficacy, virtue, or force in and after the resurrection from the dead. For all contracts that are not made unto this end have an end when men are dead. That's pretty heavy stuff. If grandma and grandpa's marriage didn't meet these two requirements and grandma and grandpa are dead, are they married? They are not. These are the laws of heaven. Now, I know that's heavy. Let's take the heaviness off because We can fix a lot of the things that got broken, but I want to portray a different order than I think you were told your whole life. The Lord gives these two. It is very significant to me the order he put it in. The Lord says, here's number one and here's number two, but we usually put it out of order. We usually say that the number one is his number two, and our number two is his number one. Let me see if I can explain what I'm talking about. What is his number one and his number two? Let's go back to where we left off. All covenants, contracts, bonds, obligations, oaths, vows, performances, connections, associations, or expectations that are not sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise. If my marriage isn't sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise, that's number one. Now, long story short, what does that mean? When would the Holy Ghost seal my marriage? You've all, anyone canned? You know what a seal on a jar is? My marriage is a jar. And I want that marriage to be sealed. So when do you think the Holy Ghost would seal my marriage? When do you think the Holy Holy Spirit of promise would put that seal on the marriage? Is that just a random act? Is it after five years? 
Is it a number of years you've been married? Do you think that's what happens? The Holy Ghost is just looking at the clock and then he seals. When do you believe the Holy Spirit of promise would seal my marriage? Is it the moment I got sealed? Do you think my, my, my wife and I were married March 23rd, 1991. Was that the day the Holy Spirit of promise put a seal on my marriage? I would say absolutely not. And that's the very point I'm trying to make is going to the temple doesn't put the seal on it. Going to the temple is number two. And we make it which one? We make it number one. When do you think the Holy Spirit of promise would seal my marriage? Okay, you be the Holy Ghost. You for one moment be the Holy Ghost. And you're going to tell Heavenly Father that my marriage is sealed for eternity. When would you do that? Any thoughts? When would you tell Heavenly Father, okay, they passed, their marriage is sealed. Tell me, when would you do that? What would you want to see in order to do that? Thoughts? Is it an automatic thing? Everyone who goes to the temple is sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise? No. Can you think of a temple marriage that the Holy Ghost is not going to put his seal on? I can so you be the Holy Ghost for one moment and you tell me, when would you tell Heavenly Father that my marriage is sealed? Who raised their hand? Anyone want to volunteer? What would you want to see? What does that mean? You, well, you love them. You... So you would want to see my love for her, her love for me over a day? One day? Well, for you, you have the capacity to choose to love them uh, unconditionally. Do you see where I'm getting at? When would you tell the Father that my marriage was sealed? What would you want to see? Uh, I would want to see, I guess, both parties strengthen each other, not the, low, not the good times, but also the bad. So you would want to watch long enough to see a commitment, a connection, a determination to, to love each other. And so it would take a long time. It would take a significant amount of time before you would say, okay, they're sealed, right? So allow me to put words in your mouth. Would you say that Heavenly Father says, the Holy Spirit of promise will seal it when you keep the covenant? I want to see that you've kept the covenant. And then I'll seal it. So allow me to say that what Heavenly Father put first is to keep the covenant. What do you think number one is going to be? What do you think number two is going to be? Make the covenant. Is there a difference in making the covenant and keeping the covenant? 
I don't mean to be negative in any way, but can you think of a couple who made the covenant and didn't keep the covenant? Would you say that their marriage is sealed for time and all eternity? No. Now here's, here's my beef. Forgive me if I have a beef. But which of those two have been emphasized to you all your life? When you were in young women's and young men, which of those two was kind of presented to you as the most important one? Making, right? You got to marry. And I don't mean to diminish that. In no way do I want to diminish that it's not important to make the covenant. But can I ask you a question? How hard is this one to fix? How hard is it to fix this one? What do we do with the dead? How hard is it to fix this one for the dead? We just take their names to the temple, right? And we've done this. How hard is it to fix this one? Do you see what I'm trying to say? I am grateful that the church all my life emphasized that I should marry in the temple. I'm grateful for that, and I appreciate that. But I worry that it sent the wrong message to my brain. I worry that the message I heard was, hey, as long as you made the covenant, you're good. And that's not what I hear the Lord saying in this verse, right? What is the Lord saying? You keep it. You keep it. Keep the covenant. Now, if you make a mistake, fix it. Repent. Apologize. But keep the covenant. Caitlin and then Yasmina. Don't you think it's interesting that they changed, uh, at least, I don't know about the men's um, theme, but they changed the young women's theme to making and yeah, notice that. Making and keeping sacred covenants. Yasmina. I just had a question about can the spirits have the sealing before somebody gets married? Um, again, it depends on how you want to define that. But could I love my wife? Could I be committed to her before we're married? Yes. But do you think I have proven that my marriage is worth sealing until I have kept it for a long period of time? I would answer the question, no. Can I keep it for five years and then it's sealed? How many of you would say, well, they were good for five years, but that's good enough. Or how many of you would want to see a significant commitment? Allow me to just simply testify and allow maybe the spirit to re-change, to change your thinking. It's not the making. Yes, making is important. It's the keeping. So let's talk about both of them briefly and then allow me to share what is one of my favorite conference moments of all time. Let's talk briefly about the making, okay? Let's see if we can explain why making it is so significant. Because it has to do with authority and jurisdiction. 
So let me ask a question. Can a South Jordan police officer pull me over in West Jordan and give me a ticket? Because? Because he's an officer of the state court of Utah, so he can stop you at any time, but he can't issue you for outside his jurisdiction. So he has the tools, he has the car, he has the know-how, he lacks authority. authority. Now, is there someone that can pull me over and give me a ticket in South Jordan and West Jordan? Is there? Yes, even before a state trooper, a Salt Lake County trooper could cite me in South Jordan and West Jordan because why? He has higher authority. He has broader, wider authority that goes beyond South Jordan and West Jordan and encompasses what? Salt Lake County. His authority is beyond the borders of the city officer. Now, could a Salt Lake patrolman cite me in St. George? Still has all the equipment, all the tools, but what would he lack? Authority. Is there someone who could cite me, pull me over and cite me in South Jordan and St. George? Is there someone whose authority is as broad as the state of Utah? Yes. Is there someone whose authority is as broad as the United States of America? Yes. Do you see what I'm trying to say? The, the breadth of your authority determines whether or not you can make something official. So let me just ask a blunt question. If I want something to beyond, to, if I want something to last beyond this life, where must their authority come from? Beyond this world. Now, do you, is it safe to say that I will owe Carrington, Mor Carrington Mortgage no money in the spirit world? Do you think I will have a mortgage payment that I'll have to pay Carrington Mortgage in the spirit world? No, because why? That contract, my mortgage, ends when I die. Because Carrington Mortgage has no authority where? In the spirit world. If I want a contract to last beyond life, where must that authority come? From beyond this life. Now, it is my solemn testimony that when Elijah came to the Kirtland Temple on April 3rd, 1836, he gave us authority beyond this life. Therefore, when I went into the Salt Lake Temple and a marriage contract was created, what are the bounds of the authority of the one who made that contract? Beyond this life. So, in order to make the covenant that lasts for eternity, it has to be made by one who holds beyond this life authority. Any authority that was not received beyond this life will end when we're dead. So number one, I need to find some place, I need to find someone whose authority extends beyond death.
It is my testimony to you that that authority exists in the sealing rooms of the temples of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. We received that authority on April 3rd, 1836, when Elijah came and handed it, laid his hand on Joseph Smith and passed that authority. Now, Joseph Smith passed it on to Brigham Young, who passed it on to uh, John Taylor, who eventually passed it on to Russell Nelson. And Russell Nelson holds that authority. That's number one. That's our number one. Make the covenant. Now, what's keep? Can I define this? Anyone want to define that? Keep the covenant. What covenant are you asked to keep? in order to make a marriage last for eternity. Any thoughts? What covenant? What's the covenant you have to keep? It's not that hard. Okay, you're paraphrasing, but where is the covenant made? I'm going to paraphrase this. I'm going to bring this over here, and I'm going to say the covenant I must keep in reverse order is the sealing covenant. Would you agree? The covenant that was made in that sealing room. Now, I know we did this once, but allow me to do it again. We've got some new faces here, so let me do it for them. It wasn't just the words that were spoken. I want you, those of you who've ever been into a ceiling room, any, those of you who ever watched a ceiling, I want you to picture what is the couple doing when they're sealed. Now, we've talked about symbolism of the temple. And do you remember the symbol of the compass? Now, a lot of us think this, right? But what shape is, is worn, this one or this one? This is the shape, right? You can go home and check it out and you'll see that's the shape. So this symbol of the compass is not a, oh, I'm, I'm going north, it's drawing. What do you do with this? You put one point in a center and then you circumscribe everything around it. So in the temple, this becomes a sacred shape, a circle. So you can think of the endowment moment. In the endowment, there's a moment where we make a circle. What would be the point that made that circle? So we've talked about that symbolism. What fascinates me about a ceiling room, I won't take the time, but I have a dozen or so pictures of ceiling rooms. And almost without fail, every ceiling room I've been in, carved into the carpet around the altar is either a circle or a square. 
Let's suppose it's a circle. So here is the circle carved into the carpet around the altar where my wife and I made a covenant. I want you to think of the point. What was the point that made that circle? Those of you who've been in that room, you know exactly what I'm talking about, right? Can you think of the point that made that circle? Now turn with me to Isaiah. I know some of you have done this, but bear with me. Bear with the symbolism, this beautiful symbolism. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 22. Old Testament, Isaiah 22. We've got to talk about some sacred symbolism. So Old Testament... Isaiah 22. Now, the situation here is King Hezekiah. He is the king of Israel. The king of Israel has a servant, kind of the secretary of state or the secretary of his staff, his chief assistant. And let me get there. His name in verse 15 is Shebna. Shebna is the king's assistant, and he's not been a good man, and he's being fired. So in verse 15 through 18, no, 19, Isaiah is sent to fire Shebna and to bring another servant to the king. Now think, king being heavenly father, servant being Jesus, because what will this new servant do? What will this new servant have power to do? This new servant will have power to decide who gets to see the king, right? If I'm the king's servant, I can decide which one of you gets to see the king and which one doesn't. So who is the symbolism pointing to here? Who gets to decide who, go back, who gets to go back and see Heavenly Father? Jesus is the servant. Now, the symbolism is in verse 20 that a man by the name of Eliakim is going to be the king's servant. And notice in verse 22, the key of the house of David will I lay upon his shoulder. Eliakim has the key to decide who gets to see the king. Now, Isaiah is telling King Hezekiah that he can trust Eliakim. And so he says a very, very sacred phrase in verse 23. I will fasten him as a nail in a sure place. Eliakim is a nail on a sure place. Meaning what to Hezekiah? Hezekiah, you can trust him. You can lay your trust on Eliakim because he is a nail in a sure place. Now that phrase has reference to the Savior's crucifixion. Elder Holland said, when the Roman soldiers drove their four and one half inch crucifixion spikes into the victim's flesh, they did so first in the open palm. If you wanted to crucify me in such a way that you hurt me, where would you nail me? If you want to hurt me, where do you place the nails? In the palm of my hand. That would hurt me the most, wouldn't it? But what would happen if I hung by a nail through the palm of my hand? it would rip right out. And so to secure me to the cross, where would you nail me? 
in the wrist. So Elder Holland says, but because the weight of the body might tear the flesh and not sustain the burden to be carried, they also drove nails into the wrist down in the nexus of bones and sinews that would not tear no matter the weight. Thus the nail in the wrist was the nail in a sure place. And Jesus is the nail in a sure place. Can you trust that Jesus has your best interest at heart? Can you trust that the Savior is going to do everything he can to save you? Can you put your whole heart and soul on the Savior? Can you hang your whole heart and soul on the nail of Jesus and know that it's in a sure place and it won't fall? Yes. And so at sacred moments in the temple, I remember that Jesus is a nail in a sure place for me, and he is asking me to be a nail in a sure place for him. But when I was sealed, I want you to think about what was the center of that circle. In other words, what did I covenant to be for my wife? What is the covenant? Anyone want to say it? A nail in a sure place. That is what I promised, that she can trust me, that I will not let her down. She can trust where I go when I'm not with her. She can trust what I do. I promised on the day we got married to be a nail in a sure place for her. And she promised to be a nail in a sure place for me. That is the covenant. Beautiful symbolism, right? All right, is that the only covenant we are making at the moment we're sealed? It's interesting that my, grand, my father-in-law is a sealer. And he has sealed, I have three kids that have been sealed and he sealed all three of them. So he sealed one of them nine years ago and one of them last summer. So I've watched his sealing change over the years. This last summer, he came into the room and said, we have been directed by the first presidency to change what we do. Now, I don't know how many of you have been sealed in the temple more than five years ago. Am I the only one? Great. Long ago, the way it happened is the sealer would come in and give some marital advice, and then he would say the words of the covenant. And the word, the, his advice, you were kind of up to the sealer. Now, some of them were good and some of them were not so good. But they would give their own personal advice about marriage. So my father-in-law this last summer came in and said, we've been asked not to do that. We have been asked not to give our personal advice on marriage and then perform the sealing. We have been asked to renew the five covenants of the endowment. Did that happen in yours? I was so impressed by that because what I heard him saying is part of the covenant you make today at the altar is what? The endowment covenant. 
that you had to do before you got here. So not only is the covenant the sealing covenant, but what else is it? The endowment covenant. Little quiz, ready? Can you name the five covenants of the endowment? Very good. Number one, the law of obedience. I will do what Heavenly Father asks me to do. That is very much a part of my marriage covenant, isn't it? Do you think the Holy Ghost is going to seal my marriage if I don't keep Heavenly Father's commandments? Not going to happen, will it? So part of the covenant is the law of obedience. What's the second one? The law of sacrifice. Now, long ago, we had this conversation several classes ago. Let me just remind you. How many, it, it, on my journey to the celestial kingdom, I go through the telestial and terrestrial worlds. Those of you who've been to the temple, you know that we go through the telestial world, the terrestrial world, and then we can enter the celestial kingdom, so to speak. When I go, when I leave the telestial world, oh, let's start at the beginning. When I leave the telestial world, how many telestial things can I take with me into the celestial kingdom. Show me on your hands how many celestial habits and attitudes I can have and go to the celestial kingdom. So the law of sacrifice says what? I have to let go of everything that's celestial. Now, luckily, do I have to do that today? No, but I'm working on it. And then I get into the terrestrial world. And Heavenly Father says, guess how many telestial things, terrestrial, sorry. We should come up with better names, don't you think? T and ter? All right, we should have green, red, and yellow or something. <laughs> how many terrestrial attitudes and habits can I take into the celestial kingdom? So part of the test is when the Holy Spirit of promise finally seals my marriage, what must both of us have done eventually? There's a long time from now, but what must both of us have done? Let go of everything celestial and terrestrial. There's the law of sacrifice. Now, Heavenly Father says, look, sometimes I say to Heavenly Father, but I don't know all the things I need to obey, and I don't know what's terrestrial, celestial, and celestial. Could you help me? And he says, you bet, I'll help you. I'll put them all into one package. Will you covenant to obey that package? I will. So I obey the law of the gospel. Then Heavenly Father says, can I take two? Can I take two of these and give them extra emphasis? Would you agree that covenants four and five are really just part of the law of the gospel? They really fit here, don't they? But he has emphasized two of these, four and five. And what are they? Chastity, Chastity and consecration. consecration. 
So part of keeping the covenant is chastity and consecration. Now, we also talked, remember in our temple class, we talked about the difference chapel ordinances, what we do in our chapels, are an invitation to go from telestial to terrestrial. Temple ordinances are an invitation to go from terrestrial to celestial. When did you first make the law? When did you first covenant to obey the law of chastity? So in the chapel, right? So the first law of chastity is don't physically do it. Don't physically violate the law of chastity. What then is the temple version of chastity? Here and here. So what does it mean to be a nail in a sure place for my wife? Here and here. And the only one, the only person who knows if I'm keeping that covenant is who? The Holy Spirit of promise. If I keep the covenant, he will seal it. Now let's be clear. Are you going to do it perfectly? Is anyone in this room going to do it perfectly? Is my wife's husband going to do it perfectly? Absolutely not. And so what do we have in the gospel for those situations where we don't fully keep the covenant? We have repentance and forgiveness and atonement and covenants and sacrament, and it all comes together. And so I say to my wife, I'm working. Forgive me. I'm getting better. Because today is not the day he's going to seal it. But I am working towards the day when he does seal it. And so I keep the covenant. Do you see? Make is important. It's an authority thing. I want to make sure the person who made the covenant for my wife and I had the authority beyond death. It's very important to me that you have the authority whose borders are beyond death. So I made sure that I went to the place where the authority was beyond death. I made the covenant. But notice that the Lord listed that second. What did he list first? Keep. Can you Keep the covenant even before you make the covenant. You can. I invite you to make it eternal by the way you treat it. And so, let me share with you one of the most beautiful moments in General Conference. Do you remember that when a 70 turns 70, we, he retires? The, the apostles are in, a, in for life, right? When are you going to be released from being an apostle? When you die. But when you're a 70, there's an exit door. 
and it's turning 70 years old. When you turn 70, we make you emeritus and you're released. And so every, every year in conference, we release certain 70s and then it's kind of our tradition to let them speak one more time. So imagine you've been a life, a long time 70 and you're being released and you have one last conference talk. Is it safe to say that that's probably your most important message? Your, I'm walking away from this and I'm going to give you the most important message I can. That's why a lot of 70s get really emotional because this is their last, you know, not all of them. Some of them are just, they're going to be around for a while, but... It's, I, I pay attention to the talks of the apostles in the first presidency, and then I pay particular attention to the talks of the 70 who are being given emeritus status, because I want, I want to know, after all this, what's your last message? One of my absolute favorite 70s, I loved his talks all throughout his life, but one of my absolute favorite 70s, was a man by the name of F. Burton Howard. His last talk changed my life. What I taught here tonight is because of what he taught me. All my life, I had known, I had been, I had heard the emphasis on making the covenant. His last conference talk, let me quote it. Most of all, I think marriage, eternal marriage cannot be achieved without a commitment to make it work. Your word. Most of what I know about this, I have learned from my companion. We have been married for almost 47 years now. My wife and I hit 32 last month. From the beginning, she knew what kind of marriage she wanted. We started as poor college students, but her vision for our marriage was exemplified by a set of silverware. As is common today, when we married, she registered with a local department store. Instead of listing all the pots and pans and appliances we needed and hoped to receive, she chose another course. She asked for silverware. She chose a pattern and a number of place settings and listed knives, forks, and spoons on the wedding registry and nothing else. No towels, no toasters, no television, just knives, forks, and spoons. The wedding came and went. Our friends and our parents' friends gave gifts. We departed for a brief honeymoon and decided to open the presents when we returned. When we did so, we were shocked. There was not a single knife or fork in the lot. We joked about it and went on with our lives. Two children came along while we were in law school. We had no money to spare, but when my wife worked as a part-time election judge, or when someone gave her a few dollars for her birthday, she would quietly set it aside. When she had enough, she would go to town and buy a fork or a spoon. It took us several years to accumulate enough pieces to use them. When we finally had service for four, we began to invite some of our friends to dinner. Before they came, we would have a little discussion in the kitchen. Which utensils would we use? The battered and mismatched stainless or the special silverware? In those early days, I would often vote for the stainless. It was easier. Sorry, I'm just early <laughs> You're fine. In those early days, I would often vote for the stainless. It was easier. 
You could just throw it in the dishwasher after the meal and it took care of itself. The silver, on the other hand, was a lot of work. My wife had it hidden away into the bed where no one, it could not be found easily by a burglar. She had insisted that I buy a tarnish-free cloth to wrap it in. Each piece was in a separate pocket, and it was no small task to assemble all the pieces. When the silver was used, it had to be hand-washed and dried so that it would not spot, and put back in the pocket so that it would not tarnish, and wrapped up and carefully hidden again so it would not get stolen. If any tarnish was discovered, I was sent to buy silver polish, and together we carefully rubbed the stains away. Over the years, we added to the set, and I watched with amazement how she cared for the silver. My wife was never one to get angry easily. However, I remember the day when one of our children somehow got hold of this, one of the silver forks and wanted to use it to dig up the backyard. That attempt was met with a fiery glare and a warning not to even think about that, ever. I noticed that the silverware never went to the many war dinners she cooked or never accompanied the many meals she made and sent to others who were sick or needy. It never went on picnics and it never went camping. In fact, it never went anywhere. And as time went by, it didn't even come to the table very often. Some of our friends were weighed in the balance and found wanting and they didn't even know it. They got the stainless when they came to dinner. The time came when we were called to go on a mission. I arrived home one day and was told that I had to rent a safe deposit box for the silver. She didn't want to take it with us. She didn't want to leave it behind and she didn't want to lose it. For years, I thought she was just a little bit eccentric. And then one day I realized what she had known for a long time. Something that I was just beginning to understand. If you want something to last forever, you treat it differently. I'm going to say that again. If you want something to last forever, you treat it differently. You shield it. You protect it. You never abuse it. You don't expose it to the elements. You don't make it common or ordinary. If it ever becomes tarnished, you lovingly polish it until it gleams like new. It becomes special because you make it so. And it grows more beautiful and precious as time goes by. Eternal marriage is just like that. We need to treat it just that way. What makes a marriage last forever? I think you could say the way you treat it. The way you treat it makes it last. I bear you my testimony. I cannot speak for any of you. I don't mean to. I speak for myself when I say this. If my family doesn't last forever, 
my whole life was a waste. Everything I did was a waste. That's how I feel. Therefore, I need to live in such a way that I make sure that that of all things lasts the longest. Make it, but more importantly, keep it. If you're not married, start keeping it now. You don't need to be married to keep the covenant. Make it and keep it. Make it last forever by the way you treat it. And I say that in the name of Jesus Christ, amen.